Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and are back to the Equitheory podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and this is part three of the book talk around The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And yeah, if you haven't listened to parts one and part two, I highly recommend doing so, uh, especially part two. We got into it a little bit there. I, I enjoyed that discussion and had a feeling that uh, this part would be in that episode, but uh, I didn't quite get to it. And I'm trying to trying to keep the episodes around an hour. So this section is going to be over the treatment and recovery of um, sort of trauma in horses and how what that might look like based on sort of the suggestions and research described in the book, The Body Keeps the Score. So without further ado, let's roll the music and get into it. guys before we get into the actual content of the episode you know we got to get into the ads however if you're a premium feed member that won't happen for you and we'll just jump right into the regular content but um, if you would like to become a premium feed member all you got to do is click the link in the description subscribe to the premium feed you won't have to deal with ads and you can ask me questions and I can answer your questions in in uh, episodes dedicated to you and you also get access to deep dives and all sorts of cool things. So be sure to check that out. And if you're not a premium feed member, you're going to hear some ads now. All right. All right. All right. I start every time I like re or like start recording again with all right. And I, you know, that's just this little thing about me. Um, so yeah, so we're back. We're back talking about the book for the last time. I do believe I'm sure it'll come up in future discussions, but as dedicated episodes. Uh, and I do want to note here that if if you are listening, again, you haven't listened to parts one and part two, again, highly recommend doing that. But if so, uh, please note that there will be some discussions of trauma and abuse. And if you are a survivor or are sensitive to this subject, please be mindful of your body. And if you notice any anxiety, if it doesn't feel like the episode for you, it's not the episode for you. Um, that said, I do think that there are a lot of beneficial pieces in it. So I, I hope that, um, you know, I can sort of keep it from being, um, something that brings up not so good things. So, um, additionally, as I feel like I need to say for legal purposes, um, I do not want this podcast to be pitched or be seen as a replacement for a behavioral consult, um, or as therapy or some sort of uh, you know, mental psycho consultation. I'm fumbling. I'll get into it in a minute. Um, but yeah, so, so just take it as a grain of salt. Uh, this is my book review. <laughs> it's not a book review, but like things that I've taken from the book that I think are interesting to apply to the conversation of horses and horses that have undergone trauma. So with all of that in mind, uh, please note that horses and humans are different. They uh, have different systems, but there is a lot that is similar in the way we sort of process things. So I think it's an interesting conversation to have and hopefully it brings up some things for you. So let's let's get into it. So this is part three. This is the treatment and recovery section that I intended to put in last week's episode, but here we are. So um, yeah. Let's let's get into it. You know, last episode we were talking about um, sort of the developmental trauma disorder 
uh, pitched diagnosis and we're ending on the relationship and attachment elements and how crucial that is to sort of setting up for trauma and how that can really affect individuals in the long haul. So in, as I was saying in that episode, when you um, are triggered and your brain and body sort of go back to the past when that event happened, um, in order to heal, one of the most important pieces is to help the brain recognize that that was then and this is now. And in order to do that, we got to do something different. We can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, because if we do that, then we're just, we're staying in the traumatic reenactment in the, in the traumatic memory. We're stuck there. So something's got to change. And, uh, with the, with a horse that keeps getting triggered and going back there to, it act as the abuser would, you know, to force them through the situation. You're keeping the horse there. Um, and to just sort of not do anything at all is also potentially enabling that. So to do something different to help reassure or to help usher the horse out of the situation, whatever it may be, to do something different. And that might be so much as attuning to them. Uh, I mentioned at the end of the last episode to have a look at, uh, if you haven't already, Raquel Dreisma's book, uh, Language Signs and Calming Signals of Horses. She goes over um, sort of all the subtleties of the way that horses communicate because they're nonverbal. So it's it's sort of the manual of reading horses. And if if you're somebody that you may, maybe you don't feel like you're super hypervigilant or you don't notice everything, you don't have like strong attention to detail, that book is going to be particularly helpful for you. And for people that are really observant and notice every little muscle twitch in their horse, um, that book is also helpful in sort of helping you discern what those little micro expressions mean. Um, So yeah, so do something different to help the brain understand that that was then, this is now. And to regain control over the self, what Vanderkolk says is that you have to in some way revisit or confront the the trauma. It can't live as this ambiguous dark cloud. It needs to be properly integrated and shelved into the library of your life, um, which is my own saying. He didn't say that because that, I don't know, hopefully that paints a picture. Um, so, but this can only be done. You can only confront or revisit when you have a visceral feeling of safety that you will not be re-traumatized by revisiting it. Because that's that's where in in psychotherapy with people, uh, we have to be very careful in revisiting, discussing trauma because it, it can be re-traumatizing to merely talk about it. So you, in order to feel safe, you have to find ways to cope with feeling overwhelmed by the sensations and emotions associated with that past. So um, Vanderkolk talks about a lot of different like sort of grounding exercises such as tapping or checking in with the feeling in your hand or EMDR is uh, really helpful for this. It sort of helps you stay present. So with horses, um, you know, that might look like a bunch of different things. Um, I know a lot of people uh, do some sort of, they have some sort of tapping situation, uh, especially for horses that are blind or deaf tapping is really helpful for that. 
Um, and I would imagine it can be done with sighted and, um, horses that can hear, but, um, yeah, so that the relationship and attachment and attunement element that we talked about in the last episode is also obviously going to be huge for the recovery discussion. So that's good news because that is your role, right? You are your horse's attachment figure and you have a frontal lobe and you're able to consciously attune to your horse and their feelings and their emotions. So, um, it's, it's a really powerful thing, a gift that you are offered, especially if you're working with a horse that is dealing with trauma. Um, it's, it's a powerful, powerful thing, but it can also be really frustrating and really discouraging. And especially if you're not sure what you're working with or what you're looking at, it's, it can be a lot. So the treatment of the trauma must address the consequences of not being mirrored, attuned to, given consistent care and affection, uh, which has resulted in that loss of self-regulation. Um, so studies have shown that a good support network or attachment bonds uh, actually is the best protection against trauma and threat. So there again, we hear just how important it is to be mirrored and feel attuned to, feel seen, feel understood, because that produces that feeling of safety. And the book goes into some pretty great detail about how, you know, as we're younger humans, we are not able to regulate ourselves and that we really do outsource that regulation. We rely on our attachment figures, our parents, our caregivers to um, help provide that regulation through attunement and attachment. So it, it is an extremely powerful thing. And I would hazard a guess that with horses being as interconnected as they are in their herd dynamics, that it's, you know, any sense of danger if one catches a, a hint of danger, it is a ripple effect through the herd that there is a similar attachment attunement importance in their physiology as is in ours. So like I said, the best protection is that attachment bond against the threat, against trauma, because safety and terror are incompatible. You can't have both happening at the same time. And the good news is that frightened adults respond to the same comforts as children do. So similar to us, young horses respond to the same comforts that the adults do to touch, connection, um, you know, cl being in close proximity with your attachment figure. So how do we leverage that as horse people is to create that safe network that when your horse is afraid of something, you help them away from it or you help them feel more confident around it. Um, and you don't add to the stress and anxiety best you can, you know. Um, so in order to recover, the mind, body, and brain must be convinced that they're safe enough to let go and this is done in the context of relationships, so whether that's, you know, maybe with a therapist or maybe with your dam, you know, if you're a horse, <laughs> that's with your mother. So if you want to be in that relationship with your horse, I think that, like I said, making sure that you sh are showing up in a way that is consistently attuning to the horse in the way that they understand and that they feel safe and seen and 
like, you know, you got them, um, will help start to produce that where they can start to explore a little bit more in the context of that relationship. So, um, the book also talks a lot about touch and how, how powerful touch can be and that it's our most elementary tool to calm. But as many of you may know, it can also be perhaps one of the most tragically corrupted and uh, in horses that can be done through, you know, like if there's a young horse and you got two young horses and you got two trainers and one of them is very affectionate and uses touch to um, reinforce the horse positively. They use positive reinforcement, they use scratches. That foal's going to love touch. But the other one, if every time they're touched, they are treated with medicine or are manhandled and forced into halters and bullied around, um, or if they start biting and they smack them, like if they're, if touch is bad to them, then it's, it's corrupted and it's, you know, it's, it's poisoned, <laughs> not in the sense of a poisoned cue as we've covered at one point, but that it's, it's just, it's gone sour. So it would then have to be counter-conditioned using positive reinforcement, some classical conditioning principles, creating a a different association with a stimulus that's now been conditioned. Um, And also body work is a a really worthwhile avenue to explore for helping fix an issue with touch, Um, that there's relief and it can feel nice. Um, So... Yeah, that's that's one of those things that um, I think is a nice segue into a topic called pendulation. Uh, the term was coined by Peter Levine. It sounds like, you know, a pendulum. Pendulation is exactly what it sounds like. You're gently and gradually moving in and out of accessing those sensations that are troubling or concerning. Um, so you pendulate to the trauma resolution. You just gently go a little bit and then back out in and out. I think uh, cat H might be a similar approach where you sort of approach and then when you notice any, um, you know, attention on the thing or subtle relaxation, then you go away. Um, So it's a similar concept. Uh, You know, all the different fields and theories have different names for different things. And there's there's some nuance and some subtle differences in them, but for the most part, it's, it sounds to me like a lot of people have seen um, seen a lot of the same thing and observed it to to be worth noting. Um, so you're what you're doing when you pendulate is you're expanding the window of tolerance. You're you know you think about successive approximation, right? Like you're taking little bite sized pieces on onto the onto the big thing. So for instance, I, I, a personal example that's happening right now, my little orange cat is sitting next to me, Wally, and he has so much anxiety. I don't, I, it's, it's hereditary because I, <laughs> I've had him since he was a baby and he, I have tried my very best to just help him get comfortable, but he's got something, something going on. I don't know if it's just the way he's wired or what, but he is just very spooky, you know, things that he's heard a million times. He just, he doesn't, um, habituate to things really. And, um, in terms of like a sound 
that like every time I get my yoga mat out, for instance, he's like running. I don't know what happened with the yoga mat. Like he's never had an experience with it. So I don't know what the deal is, but it's, it's little things like that, that, um, you know, he's just sensitive. Okay. I don't need to talk about my cat for this long, but he, um, he's always had a, an issue with the cat carrier and it's, it's gotten progressively worse, um, since the last time I moved and I just never have had to use it. So I, I did the bad trainer thing where we just don't address it. (laughs) Um, and the last time I had to put him in one, he was very, very afraid and, um, was just like panicking in it. And it was very alarming for everyone (laughs) involved. So I was like, okay, we need to start fixing this. So I got a softer cat carrier as opposed to like the hard, cheap plastic ones. Um, so I got a softer one that I have the ability to sort of black it out or allow some like light through the mesh and have just, just started by leaving it on the floor. It's just out and it's a part of our world. And, uh, you know, he investigated it and was like, that's, that's all right. I'm going to pass on that. And then gradually I started giving him treats near it and then placing treats on top of it, placing treats in it, and then sort of hiding them under the mat that's in it. And now you, at any time that you walk through the house, you, every now and again, you'll just see Wally sleeping in it. Like there's no treats in it. He just is in it. He has been classically conditioned, um, to like it. I don't think there was a whole lot of counter conditioning because I don't think he really associated it with the hard sided ones. Um, but so we're working up to being able to zip it and then pick it up and then, you know, be in it for a minute and then walk with it, you know, sorts of different things, um, until we're all the way up. we got a long way to go with him because he just, he doesn't, he don't work quite right <laughs> in terms of like, he doesn't get used to it. Um, so it's taking a lot longer with him just because he's, he's a very scaredy cat, but, um, yeah, so that's an example of like working up toward it <clears throat> and expanding that window of tolerance. And it, it is success mode approximation, but it's also not. It is, it's not. I mean, it depends on how, what, what framework you're looking at it from. <clears throat> Sorry, got something in my throat. Um, so in humans with trauma, the issue is not so much desensitizing them to the thing, but integrating it. Like I said, I believe in the last episode to put that traumatic event into its proper place in the overall arc of one's life. Um, Desensitization is perhaps more of a blunting to that reactivity that the emotional response isn't so great that you're just sort of like, okay, it's, it's whatever. Um, And I think this is more that I don't think desensitization as a whole is necessarily um, a blunting thing because I don't think that by helping desensitize a horse to say a pedestal, like where they put their front feet or back feet on a pedestal, I don't think that desensitizing them to it, if they're sort of, you know, initially afraid of it is blunting them to it to where now they just don't have a reaction. Um, Because you can also like make them, you know, or help them learn to enjoy it through using positive reinforcement training. And so I, I don't, I think that in the context of a traumatic memory to desensitize someone to it would be the emotional blunting. Right. Um, so I want to be careful in pointing out that nuance, uh, that I think in, for, in a training context, I don't think desensitizing is blunting. I think that you can, uh, 
like the way that maybe a cowboy might sack out a horse um, would be blunting. But then that's just learned helplessness. That's not really systematic desensitization as so much as it is flooding desensitization. So I think I think that's worth noting in this discussion. But um, so in the ability to pendulate, like we mentioned, I believe a little bit earlier, um, in order to sort of confront that trauma is you must feel safe. And in order to feel safe, you need to have something that grounds you um, and find ways to cope with those emotions or feelings or experiences, sensations that get really stressful um, when they come up. So they recommend starting by uh, establishing inner islands of safety within the body. So what that means is you identify body parts or postures, movements, uh, whatever is the best where you can ground when you feel stuck, terror, um, or anything, any anxiety. Um, so that might mean that, you know, if you're hanging out before you start getting into things, like, how's your hand feel? My hand feels pretty relaxed, pretty easy. Um, I feel like just the normal sensation in my hand. Um, it feels good, normal. So then when you start getting into the more difficult things, um, talking about them in therapy, perhaps you might be then asked, okay, go back to your hand. What's your hand feel like? And sort of moving in and out of that past and present and noting that feeling, paying attention to your experience and grounding within that present experience. Another, um, inner island of safety is tapping acupressure points can be a good anchor. Um, and you can, as you go through this, begin to create sensations to counter that feeling of out of control. So you learn um, on a body level, your body learns that you can, you have some say. It's not this overwhelming feeling that just takes over and it's unavoidable, uncontrollable, but that there is an influential power within you to, to change that in a way. Um, so I can't speak for certainty that this is a end all be all that this, this happens, um, regardless of the trauma or what you've been through. They, they mention a lot of alternate, uh, alternates, I guess, or, uh, approaches to treating trauma. So that's not to say that, you know, if this doesn't work for you, that there's nothing. Um, but in terms of an approach. Yes. And I think it's, it's worthwhile for horses. So you can't ask a horse, you know, ground through your body part, but if they have a default behavior, perhaps that, um, they, they know, like for Zoe, it would a hundred percent be smile. That was one of the first behaviors I taught her. It was the, the one that was the most reinforced. Everyone always wanted her to smile. I always cued it and, um, always reinforced it. So it's really, really, really built in there. So, when Zoe gets anxious or a little bit stressed, if I cue her to smile, she's focused on that now, you know, so it, it almost can work. I would imagine in a way similar to that, where you're getting them out of this, this other, this future, this anxiety, this stimuli that is, you know, triggering something. If they're alerting to something in the environment by cueing something that is a default behavior that they know, almost to a reflexive point. 
they almost can't help but respond to the cue because it's so heavily reinforced and they know it so well that it it puts them back in the, oh, I'm here. It's okay. Um, it's, and it also, because, it, I mean, there's a classical conditioning thing happening, right? So that response has been so heavily uh, cued and conditioned and reinforced for Zoe that now it produces those those same feelings on the, the neurophysical level where in her brain, by getting the cue, it's a secondary reinforcer, right? So all of those good good neurotransmitters, all the feelings, they're happening. So that might be a way to sort of apply it to horses. Um, the acupressure points as well can be a good anchor. Uh, some of the Masterson method stuff I think might be a really good approach to that. The bladder meridians pretty easy to learn and integrate and help that relaxation take place. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it all works to that pendulating to set the stage for the, the trauma resolution by pendulating between the states of exploration and safety, um, and remembering the past and being alive in the present. Um, so yeah, sort of, uh, one of the other elements I want to discuss in this is the, the human element, right? So we're a big part of this. We play a huge role in influencing our horses and affecting their, their state. So, um, I, I want to sort of touch on that as well. Now I'm not super familiar with this individual's work, but it came up in the book and it also has come up at a clinic I was at, um, a few years ago, uh, uh, Alexandra Carlin clinic. The individual's name is Moshe Feldenkrais and, uh, known for the Feldenkrais method. It's, I, I'm not super familiar with it and I need to, to look into it again, but the quote goes, you can't do what you want until you know what you're doing. So to feel present, you know, that's the end of quote. <laughs> you can't know what you want until you know what you're doing. So the sort of translation there is to feel present, you have to know where you are and be aware of what is going on within you. Otherwise, there's there's no way that you can know or do what you want, get to where you want, if you don't know what it is you're doing, who you are, why. So if you want your horse to be calm and to get over this thing or adjust to this thing or be confident, you can you cannot get to that point without knowing what you're doing and how you're influencing the situation. You have to be present with who you are, where you are, and what's going on inside you. Um, I noticed for me working with Azula that, because um, <laughs> I've been uh, working with her just out in the field casually because my schedule is a bit all over the place. Um, turning a hay trough upside down and having her target my hand up beside it and then leaning over her, scratching her and giving her lots of pets and all, all the good things. But, um, it's, I'm working toward obviously being able to sit on her at some point, just sort of in a passive way, not really formally working on training, just it's getting used to it. Um, but I am really aware of what's going on with me and my body because anytime I think about like, what if I just throw a leg over, I get like a bolt of anxiety and like nervous energy because like, I don't know how much I've talked about it. I feel like I've talked about it quite a bit, but, uh, growing up, I was always a really nervous rider. Like, I, I don't know why I was just always so anxious. 
uh, very aware of my own mortality. And so jumping big and like doing all these crazy things that all my friends like had no issue doing were always like, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to think about this and really truly weigh the pros and cons of this situation. Um, and so it took a lot for me to get to the point where I was like comfortable riding, jumping, going fast, doing all that. And so, you know, as I've sort of gotten out of the habit of riding every single day and jumping all these huge fences, um, my confidence in my ability to handle when things go awry has sort of lessened a little bit. Um, I know my body knows what to do and my muscle memory is very good, but, um, I don't know. It's just like I'm sort of out of the game a little bit. So it's it's a little bit nerve wracking to be like and it's also so exciting, right? Like to sit on Azula for the first time. I mean, I have but more a side saddle type beat and uh, I've laid across her back and she's walked, (laughs) but I haven't sat on her. So, um, you know, it's really exciting. And that's that's a big step. And so it's something that is constantly in my brain and uh, there's a lot built up around it. And so I'm having to to be aware of my own state. And when I notice that comes up for me, I have to sort of take a step back and do some breathing and regulate myself back to a place where it's it's not going to bring all this like nervous, fearful energy, you know, into the session. Um, so yeah, it's it's very important to have an awareness of what's going on with your body and your mind and your intentions and all that good stuff. The other, uh, is I've sort of already touched on this is what are you doing on a cognitive level? So, um, creating a new dialogue with the emotions and behaviors you're observing in yourself and your horse, noticing them, and then exploring them with curiosity shifts your perspective and opens you up to new options versus the habitual one. So let me break that down. Basically, what that is saying is uh, approaching the horse without judgment. Instead, approach with curiosity and everything will shift. What you're observing there is when you see an emotion or a behavior come up in your horse, you notice it and you approach it with curiosity instead of taking it as like, oh my God, my horse is an idiot or he's being so dumb. He always does this. Instead of getting critical about it, you approach it from a place of curiosity. Oh, this is interesting. I wonder why this keeps happening. How can I address this? What what might be coming up for him that is leading him to be reactive around this one thing? Why does this keep coming up? Or um, that's really interesting. So what might be causing that? Is he is he feeling a little bit more stiff or more sore? So he's a little bit more protective. Like approaching it with curiosity shifts your perspective toward being able to help the horse rather than, um, you know, a habitual one that might be to put the horse down and then sort of justify using force. So taking it as the body has things to say and what is what is the body saying? Because horses aren't, coming at any situation with some sort of personal vendetta. They are the most clean slate. They are just information in those situations, you know. They're just reacting, feeling, and being as they are. So it's not a a personal thing worth the judgment or criticism per se. So 
Another quote that I found in the book that was really interesting was yoga is about looking inward instead of outward and listening to my body. And a lot of survival has been geared toward never doing those things. So never paying attention to my body and never turning inward. And a lot of horse training issues, I think, come up for people on the on the human end of the stick by holding too much inside. And when the horse is sense that, they sort of move away. And I can tell when I when I go out and I'm having a really bad day and I am seeking the horses to comfort me, they sort of demagnetize. They're like, uh, maybe no. So in in approaching horses, I think there has to be that inner awareness of yourself. Again, you can't know or you can't do what you want without knowing what you're doing. So if you take that quote about yoga and looking inward instead of just paying attention to what's going on on the outside and you listen to your body and you notice yourself in your internal state, you, you're better able to adjust and to comfort yourself and be there in a way where you can show up for your horse without raising the alarm or, um, you know, and, and just in general, being able to show up for them as a protective, guiding, safe presence in their life, an attachment figure, if you will, coming back to that. Um, so another little tip that they mentioned in the book in the section on yoga, which is really interesting because I've been doing that quite a bit and oh my God, love it. So great. All my tension and pain and body issues sort of have melted away with that. Um, but, and I, I really notice when I haven't done it in a while and I get really, really tight in my shoulders and my neck. Um, and then I get tension headaches, very fun. Um, so they talked about breathe to the edge of where you can and notice that edge. If you notice your breath, you are in the present because you cannot breathe in the future or the past. So if you struggle with grounding yourself and sort of like paying attention to this or that around you, um, it, it's worth maybe taking that approach and seeing like, if I just focus on my breathing, knowing that I am firmly rooted in the present as I focus on my breathing, that I am, I'm doing the grounding, meditating thing. Um, so <laughs> Milo's moaning on the ground. She's like, quit talking about your stupid meditation stuff. Um, just kidding. She meditates frequently. I see her. Um, okay. So another, another point there was in terms of noticing your breath and your body state, noticing your own difficult emotions and without that judgment or criticism, notice that you're part uh, or this part of your body's holding an experience and, and let it go. You don't have to stay there and you don't have to leave. You can just use it as information. So same thing applies to horses. When they react, the information is not a criticism of you. It's not a judgment against you. It can just be pure information. It can be just how the horse is feeling. It doesn't have to be something that is a personal attack on you. If the horse is not comfortable or they're nervous, it can just be that it, it is. And then you can, again, explore and investigate from a place of curiosity, like we talked about earlier. Um, so it's much more productive to see, um, those things as, uh, information. And another 
sort of to tack on to that is it's more productive to see those emotions that sort of bring up perhaps trouble (laughs) or uh, negative insecure feelings in us, such as the aggression or the passivity or the fear in a horse as a learned behavior. So somewhere in time, the horse learned that they survive through being tough, invisible, absent, um, or if they give up or if they fight. So it's, it's something to appreciate about them that how resilient you are to have overcome this thing by, you know, by learning to be that way and to adapt. Like that's, that's incredible. (laughs) So, um, those adaptions continue until the horse feels safe and they're able to sort of integrate all those parts that are stuck in that, in that fight or avoidance of that traumatic event. So there's a, uh, a school of psychology called IFS, Internal Family Systems, and it's something that I'm, I'm interested to learn more about. I don't, I don't know all that much. I'm not trained in it or anything like that, but um, it did come up in the book, and I, I found it really worthwhile, like interesting in terms of um, people psychology, but I also think there's a little point in there about horses. So um, in IFS, they profess that there are parts to the whole that protect the self. And you have this like, um, untainted, untouched self within who you are. And then all the parts around you protect you in one way or another, or are just parts of your being, your experience. There's, you know, a lot of people talk about the inner child or your sort of protective part. There's the managers, the firefighters, the exiles, there's all these parts. Um, but I think one of the biggest things to take away from that and bringing that, that sort of concept and those principles into horse training is that the first step to healing is to assure the system, to reassure the system that all of those parts are welcomed and all were formed in an effort to protect the system. Um, so when a horse is behaving badly or undesirably to practice compassion and like I said, admiration for that resilience to help, you know, create healthier, more adaptive behavior, but to, to look at that maladaptive behavior and have an appreciation for it, that it is designed on a biological level to protect and to keep that animal safe. And that's how they survived. That's how they got to where they they are you know they wouldn't keep doing it if it wasn't beneficial in some way so in in helping them out of that is to teach that other behaviors are going to be successful um so like i talked about a couple episodes ago about the filly that would bite and had that sort of dampened flight response to help sort of reteach to her that if she indicated at all that she would like to move away that that would be respected and that that would work so that she didn't have to take it up a notch to the aggression, then that reinforced and we started working on sort of reinstalling that flight response and reinforcing that it does work um, so that we can sort of transition away from the maladaptive damaging behavior. Um, So, but without that, and with saying that that part of you that's aggressive is not welcome and you can't do that, that leads to reprimand and punishment and Um, potentially being aggressive and violent towards the horse, which can continue the cycle of abuse and 
reinforce that behavior or result in shutdown. And now the horse has no way to communicate that they're uncomfortable. They don't like that um, or that they're afraid. And then all of a sudden you have a very unpredictable, volatile horse because you never know when the explosion's coming. So um, I think I thought that was a, a valuable takeaway there. Um, beyond that, another sort of realm that I, I wanted to talk about because I thought this was interesting uh, was a discussion on uh, psychomotor therapy. So um, this was not one that I had ever heard. I've heard of psychomotor therapy, but I had never heard of like this sort of uh, approach within it, I guess. Um, so it's the Peso Boyden psychomotor therapy. It's uh, P PBSP, I believe. Um, uh, I forget exactly what that stands for, but I believe that's the acronym. Um, so what it does is the it creates these tableaus, if you will, which is a, a group of models or figures representing a scene from a story or history. So um, it, it what it does is it helps to rewrite scenes and overcome trauma. So uh, in people, that looks like a group therapy setting, perhaps, and you have a protagonist who is the individual that's in therapy that's working on something, whoever the focus is, that subject. Um, and then you have a witness who is the, the therapist, perhaps. And what they'll do is they sit opposite the protagonist. And as you move through this sort of story and sort of have a 3D play out of everything that happened, um, the uh, witness says, a witness can see how, you know, how that brings up a lot of stress in you or how your eyebrows knit together and you, you appear sad. A witness can see how you shift uncomfortably as you talk about this. And so what that's called is micro tracking. You're tracking those subtle shifts in posture, expression, tone, gaze, emotion. Uh, and what it does is it, it helps or it results in softening the protagonist as they're seen and they're validated and does this sound familiar? Yes, it's attunement. Once again, um, so you're attuning as the witness to the protagonist saying, I see you, you're valid for that. This is what's happening for you and sort of bringing those things up. Um, and then there are some other roles that are involved in this as well. One being the contact person who the protagonist will choose to sort of sit next to them for support. Um, and then others are the structures of the protagonist's past. So it might be the group participants that play roles to sort of bring that inner world to life. So you'll have um, people playing roles of the people that hurt them in the past, the protagonist. And you'll also have the ideal wished for figure. So you'll have the ideal mother or ideal father um, to sort of rewrite and reenact those traumatic situations. And it, by projecting that inner world into the 3D space, you are able to gain some insights over the happenings of your mind and gain a much clearer perspective on your reactions to those past uh, people and events. So you can experience moving the pieces around and observing the effect. And um, it helps sort of sort of flesh all that out and see where those areas are that are maybe in deficit and how you can rewrite them. So the reason I thought this was an interesting part of the conversation with horses is that that feels very reminiscent of what we do with horses that have maybe had trailer accidents or have been afraid of one thing or another because of a, a traumatic experience that they had with it. 
and helping set up an environment in such a way where they have more control over the needle or over whether they enter the trailer or not. They're allowed to choose, can you, can I touch you? No? Okay. (laughs) Then that's respected. And um, a lot of work at Liberty works like that, where you're allowing the horse to come and go sort of as they're comfortable and allowing them the, to be that protagonist where you're sort of helping create a structure of their, their painful experience and moving it into something that can be a corrective experience. Um, so your, your job is to provide them with the support they need to delve into whatever that it is that they've been too afraid to explore on their own. So you're reworking that past in a safe container and it can be powerful enough to create new supplemental memories. And especially in the context of like working through trailer anxiety, separation anxiety, whatever it is, you're, you are having this added benefit of systematic positive reinforcement, classical conditioning, and all this associative positivity (laughs) coming with it. Um, And so it's really interesting. But again, on the attachment attunement front, something else really interesting that came from this um, Peso Boyden psychomotor is the uh, being validated by feeling heard and seen is the precondition for feeling safe. So we talked about like in order to confront and explore, you have to feel safe. And how do you feel safe? Well, you have to ground in something, uh, whether that's yourself or in this case, you are sort of grounding in the witness. The witness is observing and attuning to you the whole time. So uh, what came of that was a neuroimaging study showed that when people hear a statement that mirrors their inner state, like how they're feeling, they hear a statement that mirrors how they're feeling, uh, reflects maybe, their amygdala lights up as if to sort of underscore, underline like that is accurate, <laughs> which is crazy. So like somebody says, well, you, you seem really upset about that. And if that's true for you, your amygdala lights up like, yes, that's, that's it, spot on, which is wild. Um, and that accurate mirroring feels wildly different from being ignored, criticized, or put down. So I'm losing my voice a little bit, I think. Um, so what that looks like with, with horses is in a training scenario, when you've got a horse that's afraid of something or wary of something, and they're, they're used to sort of being drug over to it or beaten toward it or what have you, the flip side is going to be wildly different to be mirrored and acknowledged and maybe take a cat H approach or maybe the positive reinforcement approach, clicker training, systematic desensitization, successive approximation, whatever, you know, um, you're taking it just a step closer, a step closer, and it's not going to be as heavy and it's not going to produce these horrible fallouts all around it. It's not going to damage the attachment and the relationship, but with the mirror and witnessing that new reality takes shape where you're a reliable attachment figure to the horse, you're an island of safety and it gives them, and and what this does in humans that we sort of, uh, have learned from these studies and, um, carrying out these therapeutic models is that it gives us permission to feel what we feel and know what we know. And I think that that is a a huge part of an experience in working with horses is to not deny them 
their emotions, their thoughts, their experience, but to reinforce them and help prop them up in a way that gives them courage and confidence in themselves and in us. And I think that is ultimately how you create a really strong, strong partnership with them, right? And how you end up being safe. Um, so yeah, <laughs> those are sort of my thoughts on this book and some high points, some takeaways, and I hope hope you've taken something from this. My throat is killing me. I don't know how I used to do this for like four hours. Like, oh, this is incredible. Um, yeah, because I've been at it for like two. How did I? I literally used to do this for four hours. I don't get it. Anyway, so uh, I really enjoyed the book. Again, if you want to read it, please, if you're younger, please, God, wait till you're older. It really is like aggressive in some parts. And it's also really dense and a hard read anyway. So, um, but yeah, I think it was worth it. And I'm really curious to hear you guys' thoughts on, uh, if you've read the book or just even through the podcast, like how, I don't know how it impacted you and what you have taken away from it. If your perception of trauma is a little bit different, especially in horses, particularly, um, and if you sort of like this merging of worlds of the psychology and the the horses and also the book talk series, I, I need to know a lot of things from you, okay? So please let me know. I'm going to jump off here because my throat is about done. Um, but yeah, I thank you guys so much for listening and please take care of yourself and enjoy your ponies. Take care of them. Have a, a nice relaxing grounding moment with them perhaps this week. Um, yeah. That's all I got. All right. I'll catch you guys next week. Bye.